Wonderful. Thank you very much, Robbie, for leading us so well this morning um, through our time of remembrance and into God's Word. And thank you very much, Sarah, as well, for reading that passage um, um, for us. And before we get into all of that, I think it'd be very good for me to pray. My prayer, Father God, as we approach your Word, is simply this, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be holy and acceptable to you this morning, my rock and my Redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, welcome to 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. And you're all grinning at me. Um, This is uh, where we are this morning as we come to the next section in our walk through uh, 1 Timothy. And as we come to uh, one of the very hardest passages, I think, that we can preach on uh, in our culture. But remember uh, why we have to look at it together today. Because as we've been seeing over the past few weeks in 1 Timothy, I as minister, as an elder of the gospel, I am charged to speak the words of Jesus, the gospel, the Bible, to you in its entirety for the protection of this local church family. That is, you, which is uh, chapter 3, verse 15, the household of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And we are reminded of that charge to Timothy to speak all of these things in this letter, and that charge is given to me and anyone who wants to be a minister and an elder of the gospel. At the end of the book, in chapter 6, verse 3, um, which I want to start off with this morning, it helps us massively as we confront some of the very difficult things Jesus has to say to us. Just read with me from chapter 6, second half of verse 2. As Paul summarizes his letter, he draws it to a close. He says this, teach Timothy and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And with that charge, we have two very important things that we need to get right in our minds before we go any further into the difficult parts of chapter 2. The first is that I or anyone has to teach these things in this letter and in the rest of the Bible as they stand. To not do so means that I'm failing you, I am puffing myself up with conceit, because it means I'd rather you like me more than I want to defend the gospel. Secondly, however, and far more importantly, Paul unashamedly says that the things written here, verse 3, notice, are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. I said this in week one as we introduced uh, this letter, and we're reminded of this last week, uh, where he said that the words written in this letter and all of his other letters are not Paul's personal ideas about the church, They are Jesus' words and are his personal ideas and designs and desires for his church. And that really helps us as we look at these few difficult but important, and I believe glorious words that Jesus has for us, his church, this morning. For it's plainly obvious that we are looking at the role of men and women in the local church, which uh, makes this passage so very sticky in our culture. Because of that, because of Issues of uh, language around gender and sex and roles, they're the thorny issues of the spirits of our age. We are tempted, I think, as Bible-believing Christians to do two things to these passages in the Bible. The first is that we disregard them and claim them as the whims of Paul. Well, we can't do that, as we've just seen. These are the words of Jesus. And the second thing we try to do, I think, is relegate these words to them being merely cultural and of their time, dealing with specific issues in this church in Ephesus, and were never meant for anyone else. Well, there are specific issues that Paul is dealing with in Ephesus. But the arguments that he gives here are general principles that he brings from creation and from the rest of the Bible. So we cannot do that either. We can't disregard these words. 
We cannot simply pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like and, and maybe find uncomfortable. And we can't accept that Jesus wants one church, the Ephesians specifically, to behave totally differently to any other in the world. Even more so can we not do that with these verses because of the context of these verses. And that is the verses that become before our passage that Will preached to us last week. They really help us promote verses 8 to 15 higher in importance than I think we might like. Just look at the verses from last week, verses 1 to 7. What are they talking about? They are talking about how God desires that all kinds of people are to be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died as a ransom for them. And how is that going to happen? How is the local church going to aid this mission of seeing all kinds of people saved through the Lord Jesus? We'll look at verse 8, our passage this morning. I desire then that in every place men should pray, that women should be godly, and that men should lead. You see, the, the, the then acts as a therefore. I want people to be saved through Jesus, verses 1 to 7. I desire then, therefore, that men and women do these things in the local church family, in verses 8 to 15. These verses are tied intimately into the whole nature of what the church is to be and do. These verses in 8 to 15 are tied inextricably to God's mission to seek and to save the lost in verses 1 to 7. To, to the local church's mission to, to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. And, and that truth never changes from age to age, from place to place, from church to church. So we can't put these verses to one side. In other words, they have to be treated with real respect and care and seriousness, I really, really hope that I do that this morning. They are really hard for us, for some of us harder than others. And we have to treat these words as being for us this morning, for our time, our culture, and our church. As we come to see who we are meant to be, how we are meant to behave as men and women in the church family, and what it is that we are meant to be doing together. But even more than that... As I draw this uh, introduction to a close, the very hardest parts of these verses this morning, verses 11 to 15, which we'll come to, they are given even more seriousness as Paul links them unashamedly with Genesis 1 to 4, where everything we looked at last half term is brought to bear on the reality of what the church is to ultimately look like as God's household. And that is that we were always meant to look like and behave in the Garden of Eden. That's what we're meant to look like imperfection before the fall. That, it seems, is what Jesus is wanting to establish again on his earth. A new redeemed Eden-like people of God's family, looking radically different to the world, but very much like how it was before the fall, how God always wanted his family in the earth to be led and protected. But before we get there, let's start where Paul starts, and that is with the men. 4.1, in order to be a church that aids God's mission's heart, which desires that all kinds of people are to be saved, first point, men should pray and not quarrel. Verse 8, just read that with me. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In short, men in the church, we need to man up. Not by strutting around each other like preening peacocks, spoiling for a fight. As the world might view masculinity, rather we are to man up by praying. I'm so concerned for the lost, says Jesus, through Paul, verses 1 to 7, that I want praying and not angry or arguing men in the church. In place of quarrelsome fists raised in rage, in other words, I want holy hands lifted in prayer. I want a church that looks like to outsiders, like a place where men are leading in the church in prayer. And leading the church in their humility to one another, not in their pride and bravado. That, that is attractive, says Jesus through Paul, lifting up your hands in prayer. That, 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 that's, that is what is going to pull people into church life. That is what being the pillar and buttress of the truth of God's gospel looks like. That is what God is going to use to save all kinds of people. It's so countercultural. 
We have to look the opposite to the world, in other words. The world might display masculinity in boardrooms and head offices and the government as sort of antagonistic, fronting up slugfests or wanting to consolidate power. That, that, that's not what we're meant to be in the church. Notice Jesus, don't be like that. Let go of your fists held out in front of you for quarreling. Open your hands instead towards the Lord Jesus. Keeping yourself vulnerable to each other, open, in the position of wanting to, not many of you like hugs, but in the position of wanting to hug, dependent on the Lord Jesus. Now, that's a cultural position of prayer. We don't have to be raising our hands literally. We can do if we want to. The point here is, we, are we using our bodies, men, not for fighting and anger, but for prayer and vulnerable dependence? That is what manliness looks like according to Jesus. That is how we are meant to behave. Now, none of that means that difficult conversations don't need to be had. They almost certainly will. Paul had to confront people in his ministry and say difficult things, and we might need to say hard things to each other as elders, as ministers, as members. But to be able to do that, to have those conversations in love, genuine prayerfulness, admitting in these conversations that we might be wrong, we're not always right in our positions, as hard as that is to admit out loud to each other, especially as men, I think. But I think we're terrible at admitting that we might just be wrong. We, we are a pride-filled species. Genesis 3 reminds us of that in the curses given to man and woman, where our desire is to rule over our wives, by extension over others, each other. As redeemed men in God's new holy family, we have to defeat our pride and do what we must when we meet together, when we converse together, dealing with difficult things together, always with our heads bowed in prayer as we seek the Father's help. And if praying is our automatic posture, men, surely that all actually starts building up an attitude in with us where we might not actually get to the stage where we need to have those difficult conversations, where, where anger dissipates a lot more easily, a lot more quickly. Where we even get to the stage where we can say to ourselves, you know what, that issue in church life, it's probably not worth bringing up, I can live with it, it's nothing major, I, I'm just going to pray about it instead. Or, or if I do say it, I, I want to couch it in deep encouragement for my brother. There's a lot of good things that I'm maybe not seeing. I'm blinded by the few bad things I'm hung up about. I, I want to spend my time praying for the church instead, praying with that person, praying for the lost, praying to the Lord Jesus. I, I want to be in that position rather than always seeking to make my voice heard, my presence felt, my, my grumpiness known to everyone. It's on our shoulders, men, and, and it's so much easier for me to speak to you as I am one, and, and one who struggles with pride and anger and defensiveness often. It's on our shoulders, laid on by Jesus, to lead the rest of the church family in our behavior when it comes to peace and prayerfulness and not quarreling. And that's not just in the church, that's also in our family lives. How are we treating our wives? How are we treating our children? What is our behavior like? Not always grumbling. Not always wanting to rustle up something for the sake of it. Not always wanting to have my view promoted. I remember speaking to a church leader when I was a map in Cardiff many years ago, and he said he had a man in his church who would pick random topics to fight on. He'd pick out the smallest non-issue in church, which no one had ever noticed, and he would raise it in a church prayer meeting or in a small group and try to draw people's attention to it, and suddenly it was a thing. And, and then that thing would dog the eldership for ages, and eventually it would be put out, a few months of quietness, and then he'd suddenly raise something else. And the whole process went on and on and on again. He was a, he was a pot stirrer, always meddling, always quarreling, stirring up the church. It was exhausting. 
I'm not saying that that's what we're like here, but, but I can see how a church might get to that point if we men aren't really careful. It's a hard passage for us. It's not that women can't struggle with this either. In, in Paul's letters to the Philippians, he exhorts two women to stop quarreling, Euodia and Syntyche. But the Bible is unashamed, for, all the way from Genesis 2, to say that we are different creatures to each other, made differently. We are cursed in our sin differently. We struggle with things differently. And, and I think Jesus is unashamed to point out that we perhaps maybe struggle with this more than the women. We want to fight. That's our knee-jerk reaction in a fallen, sinful state. Not all the time, perhaps. Not on every issue even. Not even necessarily in a violent way. And some of us will struggle with this more than others who might not struggle with it at all. But we are warned, nonetheless, by Jesus. Be very careful. Not lobbing hand grenades at each other. Not riling each other behind our backs. Being careful how we talk about each other, to each other. Not being at DEFCON 5 and code red after only point one on the agenda in the meeting. Don't fight men of the church. Don't quarrel. Don't stir the pot and drain the church with exhaustive firefighting. Pray. Let us be a church of men who are seen at the prayer meeting, and I am unashamed to use this as an application point, where us husbands and fathers and sons and brothers in arms in the church are, are seen coming out on a wet Thursday evening with our heads bowed, praying for each other, praying for repentance and forgiveness, praying with thanks, praying for the lost, praying for the church in unity. Let us men be leading our families, our wives, our children in daily prayer together in front of each other, unashamedly. Are we doing that? Leading our families in the church in ways that show humility, full dependence on the Lord Jesus. For that is what I want people to see in the local church, says Jesus, as you hold out the truth of the gospel as I desire for people to be saved. Remember, as I close this point, the only person I have in mind as I preach through all of this is myself. I, understand, I stand under the judgment of God in the way that I behave in this church family more than you do. And I know that I am quarrelsome and hard sometimes. I'm defensive and difficult at others. And I have to ask you for, to forgive me. I have to repent before you and the Lord Jesus. For that, I need to deal with those consequences. Please pray for me as I pray for you all as we seek to love each other in this church family in the unity under God's blessing. Secondly, however, Jesus through Paul now turns to the women of the church and says, point two, in order for the local church to behave in a way that shines the gospel, women should adore themselves with gospel godliness and not immodesty. That's uh, from verses 9 to 10. Just read those with me. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, this is where things get to get a lot harder for me as a man, as I stray into the murky waters of speaking to you women about clothes. And I'm not actually going to do that. Uh, don't worry, as if this passage wasn't awkward enough. But, but as I do, remember these words of Jesus and not the words of Sam. And what Jesus is desiring from women in his household here is to simply be people who adorn the gospel in godliness and respectability and not to adorn anything else that is the opposite of that. Paul is not giving you tips on how to dress necessarily, ladies. The apparel you're to wear is godliness and good works. That is what you are to be known for in, in Jesus' household as you present yourself to the world. 
But in that, even in our culture, which might be miles away from Ephesian culture, it still makes sense that presenting yourself in a godly way means not dressing in ways that are immodest or disrespectful. That's what Paul is saying here. This is going to be one of the most obvious sentences I'll say all morning, and that is that I don't think this is a material issue at all here at uh, Redeemer. I, I fully believe that. I have been in churches where that has been an issue, and that's hard as godly women come alongside others and teach gently what the gospel does for us in the way that we present ourselves. That's not what I want to say to you this morning. Uh, I think what I want to get across here is the heart issue that Jesus is always dealing with. Where does your heart lie in terms of how you see yourself under the Lord Jesus? And how you see yourself against the world? Are you spending more time worrying about your appearance materially, what you look like, how much you want people to notice your jewellery and your clothes, more than spending time following the Lord Jesus and worried about living for him in godliness and respectability, not worrying about what other people think of you? That's what he's getting at here. And as much as anger and quarrelling and pride is perhaps mainly a thing men struggle with, it might well be that this area of living, says Jesus, is perhaps something that women struggle with more than men, that the Bible is unashamed of, of pointing that out here. And as much as we men also need to watch the idolizing of our body image and presentation, which we can really struggle with, in our culture, I think women are in the firing line of this difficulty. I did a straw poll of adverts in a single ITV program the other day, and the vast majority of them, especially leading up to Christmas, were tailored to women's clothes, perfume, makeup, and jewelry. I think there's huge pressure on women to look and behave in a certain way. And we've seen the consequences of those expectations placed on young girls through social media makes life unbearable for many of them as the impossible expectations of beauty destroy self-esteem and mental health. And I do think it's a god of our age. I remember the tagline of a company called GHD, which apparently make hair products and accessories for women. It's embarrassing, I know this. But the, the tagline of their advertising for their products was, the this is the gospel according to GHD. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's very brazen. Beauty and presentation and clothing and power is the gospel of the world, and ashamedly. It's hard not to have your minds wired to think like that. In no way is this a new issue for women. Paul is talking in this letter to the church in Ephesus, and as much as what is written in this letter is sort of timeless truths for us, we've talked about that, and its context in Ephesus in the first century is really helpful. And right in the middle of the city of Ephesus was a massive temple dedicated to the goddess Diana, stroke Artemis, depending whether you're Roman or Greek. The, the, the feminist god of power and the female body. That the, the pressure on women in Ephesus was huge to be seen to dress and present themselves in a certain way where outrageous jewellery and, from sources of the time, huge piled-up hair was the norm. It, it meant that you were displaying yourself to Diana. So that's why Paul mentions those two sp things specifically here, the braiding of hair. That's why Paul is writing so much about the women to this church, because, Timothy, it's, it's hard for them as Christians to live in a different way. It's so countercultural to dress in the way Paul describes here. Was the gospel according to the world? It might look different in the West, but there's still the yearning to be something we're not, to follow the looks of the spirit of our age, to follow the gospel according to GHT or, or, or Vogue or whatever. What Jesus wants the women in his church family is to, to have their heads and hearts wide to the gospel according to Jesus. Not to what they look like, but to living for and living like Jesus. Not to pour their efforts and energies and money into rich, expensive tastes and styles, but into Jesus, not to flaunt riches and pearls and clothing, in other words, but to, to flaunt good works and godliness in grace. 
What does this look like? I am not telling you ladies what to wear. Nope, this is already a terribly awkward sermon. But I will say this, Paul is not saying don't dress well in nice clothes. Jesus through Paul is not saying that you can't get new clothes, you can't even get new posh clothes. Paul isn't saying you can't put your hair up. That's not what he's talking about here. You can't put makeup on, whatever it is, wearing jewellery. It's all couched in whatever is respectable and glorifying to God. He isn't even saying don't be involved in high-end fashion, I don't think. Lydia, in Acts, the first contributor to Paul's ministry, was in fashion, in all intents and purposes. She was the seller of purple. She sold very expensive clothes and fabrics, and she's giving to the church. Paul's not bothered by that, or or even what you look like in that sense. You can enjoy all those things. Great. The question is your heart. And how does that affect how you adorn the gospel in Jesus as you present yourselves to each other and the church family? Are you wanting people to know how beautiful you are, how much money you have for what you wear, or do you want people to look at you and see how beautiful Jesus is and what he has done for you? For that is what is at stake. Other people, those Jesus desires to be saved, verses 1 to 7. And us, as men and women living in these ways, not spending time on what we look like, not spending our time men limbering up to each other, but being real men and women in these ways is the way in which God wants his church to look in the world. Different, radical, countercultural, like Jesus himself, holding out his gospel truth. And this all brings us to the last bit of these verses, which leads us to our last point. For the sake of the lost, in order to properly see verses 1 to 7 achieve, Jesus wants his church to have men and not women to authoritatively lead and teach in the mixed gathering of Jesus' church family. Now, let me just read these last few verses again. I'm going to go through it logically. And after this talk, remember, we have a Q&A next Sunday where you can ask me and Will questions about all of this after Will's sermon on chapter 3. It's important we listen to chapter 3 before we have the Q&A because these two parts go together. You've also got time to digest this in your growth groups with your elders before you come to that over the course of this week. I hope that really helps in many ways. And you can always speak to me privately afterwards as well, and during the week on email or through the phone or through meeting up. And and I'm going to give myself to that because these are hard verses. These verses deserve time and patience, and I hope that we do that this morning with them and over these few weeks. Let me just read from verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what do we do with this? Well, let me highlight how these verses work together. It's a very tight structure. We have first a command in verses 11 to 12, followed secondly by a reason for that command, verses 13 to 14, followed by a point of application, verse 15. First, a command... Verse 11 to 12, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, let me just hit two words on the head here. What does it mean to remain quiet or to learn quietly? That sounds very hard on our ears. Well, the Greek word here means to be peaceably settled. And in the age of the goddess Diana, where there was loud feminism, it makes sense to use that word in that local church, but it helps us today as well. It does not mean, therefore, that you cannot speak in church, women. It can't mean that, as that is contrary to the rest of Scripture. In Titus 2, 1 Corinthians 11, Romans 16, women are given speak and praying and teaching roles in the church. So it can't mean that you aren't to speak. It means to be at peace in a settled way that doesn't cause commotion. 
The second word is authority, specifically authority over a man. And that very much speaks to leadership and teaching authority in the mixed congregational gathered church setting, much like we are here this morning. And we know that because of what Paul describes in verse 8 as all these things, men not being quarrelsome, women dressing well, happening in every place. That is used very much here as every place that the church is gathered because the bounds of this letter is the local church setting. Not that we're meant to be quarrelsome outside of the church and not in it, but in terms of authority here, it means that Paul is not talking about secular environments where women can't hold positions of authority, become heads of industry, government, CEO of businesses, whatever. Again, Lydia in the New Testament, she ran a successful company which financed the church. What, what Jesus is worried about is his set-apart redeemed family, his local church. Neither is Paul saying, I don't believe, that women can teach at all outside the mixed gathering congregation outside of where we are this morning. And we know that because of what Paul says in the rest of his letters. Chapter 5 of this book, women are encouraged to raise their children in the Lord in the home. In Titus 2, Paul encourages women to teach to teach themselves and younger women in the church context. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul encourages prayer and encouraging speech from women in the mixed gathering, the speaking of biblical truths that uplifts and unifies the church congregation of women, children, and men through one-to-ones or conversations or relationships. What Jesus through Paul is, is wanting by way of teaching and authority here is in the gathered congregation, the the teaching and preaching of God's word to Jesus' local church as a whole from the front, much like I'm doing this morning. For men to take that kind of leadership and the ultimate care of the church teaching, not women. And that pattern is established and never changes in the whole of the New Testament. And note before we go any further, not all men. In fact, as we'll see next week, very few men. The conditions and qualifications for eldership are high indeed, and so they should be, as Jesus desires his church to be led in a very serious and protective way, where those of us who do have to lead have to answer to Jesus in a very serious way, in ways that you and the church do not have to. Now, this is all hard for us to deal with in so many ways. It, it, it is in our culture, but it was very hard for the Ephesians in Timothy's day, remember. It's why Paul is writing this to him. It cuts against the grain of his culture. You can imagine Timothy squirming as he has to wrestle with this in the shadow of Diana's temple. The ultimate question is why? Why does Jesus want his church, who is the pillar and buttress of the truth, to have only a few men leading and teaching his gathered household? Well, that brings us on to the reason for all of this, verses 13 to 14. And he says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And this is where our sitting in Genesis 1-4 to over the past few months really helps. For verse 13, Paul goes to Genesis 2, where if you remember from last time, Adam was formed first and Eve second. And that's just a true fact. And that true fact reminds us that men and women are created differently at different times and with different roles. Male and female, God created them, but both bear God's image perfectly, individually and together, given different roles, but created equal. Men created first to lead and work the ground and have authority, something he displays before Eve is created, but unable to do it perfectly without Eve's help. So Eve, woman, was created next to be Adam's helper as woman perfects man and perfects creation and perfects God's image in his rule over his creation in her. You cannot have man without woman. You cannot have woman without man. Two different genders, two different roles. One equal status before God as both display his image. We are, we are diverse creatures, 
And men and women can be fundamentally different and equally the same. They are both true at the same time in the Bible. And Paul's point here is that in the garden of his perfection, where God's family was to flourish perfectly, God gave the leadership, the headship of this family to the man. And God is unashamed of that, and I don't know why he did it. But he does. And he sees that model as the best way for human flourishing and for the flourishing in his household. And because of that reality... Because Adam was given the role of leading, so he bears the full responsibility of all of human sin. For the entirety of the human race, for all time, it's man's fault, it's Adam's fault. Man, Adam, failed in his role to lead and protect woman from Satan's false teaching, which infected God's family and destroyed it. And that is what is going on in verse 14. Here, Paul uses Genesis 3 to help him. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And at this point, we want to point out the glaring contradiction to my own point. <laughs> if Adam bears the full weight of human sin for all time, rightly so, then why on earth is Eve singled out here as being the one who was deceived? With the connotation here that because she was deceived and not Adam, well, she can no longer take leadership because women are now forever tarnished with her foolishness. Women just can't be trusted. <laughs> That is not at all what is going on here. Paul is making a very important point here about the creation order that God has established in Genesis 2. That upended in Genesis 3 during the fall and humanity's interaction with the serpent. Where, if you remember, the, the creature who was meant to be under the authority of woman, under the authority of man, under the authority of God, well, that's suddenly reversed. And the serpent takes charge, and woman interacts with the serpent overruling man, who eventually blames God, who ends up right at the bottom of the pile. As man surrenders his role to the woman, steps back, and 1 Timothy 2, verse 14, therefore, allows woman to be deceived. You see, the point here is the fact that woman was deceived first and not Adam means that Adam failed. The order of things should never have happened in that way. It's, it's his fault. It's, it's merely a comment by Paul on the inversion of God's good created order, the inversion of everything good that he'd put in place for the flourishing of mankind. And Paul's point here then is because that inversion of God's created order was so fatal to God's household in Genesis 3, because Adam stood back and allowed Eve to take over his role, allowed her to be deceived, because that then ushered in sin through Adam, the ultimate failed leader. So can you see, Timothy, says Jesus through Paul, how important it is that that inversion of my created order doesn't happen again in my new Eden, in my new redeemed household, the household of the living God, the local church, the pillar and buttress of the truth. In short, I want men to lead my perfect family again as I originally intended, for them to step up and take responsibility. I, I want to put what went wrong at the fall right. So men, we, we need to lead. We need to step up and lead. We might not all be elders and ministers or deacons. In fact, James says in his letter that many men should not presume to lead or teach like that in the church. It's just too hard. But we do all need to step up and lead in our families, in our church life, in our teaching of the Bible, in our praying, not arguing, not lording it over people, leading. And those specifically tasked to lead in specific ways in God's church, us elders, me as minister, well, we really need to step up and be serious and put sin to death and sacrifice our very lives for the church and for our God who rules it, and to step in the way of Satan's false teaching, 1 Timothy chapter 1, that Adam refused to do in Genesis 3. 
but which we are charged that we must do. God wants to build his new church and redeemed Eden on the earth through his church. And men, we are given a second chance as redeemed men of God to lead and guard and sacrifice ourselves for the protection of God's family, to, to not shipwreck the church's faith just as it shipwrecked Adam and Eve. And if that is true, if God wants man to step up and lead in this new Eden in the local church, then it also must mean that God wants women to help and aid the men as they do, because Genesis 2 and 3, men cannot lead God's family without women. Women, we cannot lead, as Genesis 2 shows us. We cannot do that well. The church is not good if you do not help us. If you are not teaching in your roles in church life, if you are not celebrated and protected and encouraged in your gifts and championed in your roles in church life, if that isn't happening, if your gifts aren't being exercised, if we as elders are not encouraging you in your teaching ministries in the right areas of church life, then the church isn't the church. We're not leading. And that brings us on to something else that must be heard before we finish. Paul is not saying here, therefore, that women are more duplicitous or not to be trusted or are more gullible and giving over to whims of fancy. Not at all. It is Lydia in whom Paul trusts to house his ministry in Philippi. It is Phoebe, the female deacon who finances Paul and takes, possibly transcribes and reads the most important letter of the New Testament, Romans, to, to the Roman church. Who is it in Acts that helps Aquila theologically straighten out Apollos, Paul's fellow missionary, and keep him faithful? It was Priscilla, Aquila's wife. With, uh, without her, that there is a lot of New Testament ministry that doesn't happen. Women are instrumental in church life. God's church is imperfect without their unique gifts. And this is why at Redeemer, we won't have female ministers, preachers, or elders. And I hope what I said this morning from 1 Timothy has explained why as we join with many other churches who, who, who share with us the way that we lead this church. And you can chat to me about that as well over the course of this week. But we do want to celebrate and promote and encourage every woman in their different gifts in church life to teach and to encourage and to equip and to serve and help unify and uphold this local church family in the Lord Jesus. It's why at Redeemer we do have women leading services from the front, praying in public, reading the Bible out loud. We want to encourage that. It's why at Redeemer we have women teaching in small groups under the leadership and direction of the male elders in those groups, having been taught by the elders at growth group leader training as they sit under the authority of God's ordained headship. It's why we'll have godly trained women speaking to those of us who are leaders in the church about how to pastorally look after people in very specific ways. They just have the knowledge and the secular wisdom and the biblical expertise that I don't have. We need these women coming in and helping us in church life. That's why we have female deacons in the church family as Paul appoints them to his ministry and his service and can reach parts of the church that I can't. It's why in time hopefully we'll have female maps training with us as we want to grow women for future ministry in their own churches, teaching in the right environments, being biblically brilliant so they can share the gospel with all kinds of people who need to be saved. I hope you can see how carefully we've tried to treat these difficult verses. I hope you can see that it is because of these verses, many more in the New Testament, why we have set up Redeemer in the way that we have. I hope you can see that we really are a church family trying to obey the Lord Jesus and to do what he says and to establish this church in the way that he wants his new redeemed family on earth to look like. With elders and deacons, as we'll see next week, but also in male headship and in full, equally redeemed complementarity between men and women working together for the gospel. They are hard verses. I, I really get that. I feel them this morning. 
And in many ways, they are perhaps verses of the Bible many of us might always wrestle with and never feel fully confident on or entirely convinced by. And that's okay. God is gracious to us, and he knows these things are hard for us to bear in a fallen world. They just are. They were hard for Timothy. But we do want to biblically and faithfully follow and obey the Lord Jesus. It's hard. It's why we have a Q&A on it next week. We want to be really upfront about how difficult this is and, and why we go through them in growth groups together to good, give good time to wrestle with them. But I hope you can see what is going on here is what is meant to be a beautiful thing. Where in God's church, more than anywhere else in the world, men are allowed to flourish as men and women are allowed to flourish as women, unashamed of who we are in our created roles, excited by the roles that God has given us in our genders. And that brings me lastly to perhaps the hardest verse of all, verse 15, the application Paul wants to land on. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It sounds ludicrous. I promise you it isn't. There are many different ways people try to hack what is called, and I quote, one of the most notoriously difficult verses to understand in the Bible. Is it that women who give birth obtain salvation? Obviously not. Is it that all women, because of their special role in being able to give birth, are saved? Obviously not. That's why Paul adds the addendum of women, like men, having to live for Jesus in faith and in love and holiness, self-control. Salvation comes through Jesus living for him. Is it that Paul is referring to Eve in that she shall be saved through childbearing, even though she sinned to a certain extent? Yes. This would be an argument from Genesis 4, where Eve gives birth to a son, Seth, whose line begins to call on the name of the Lord, and from that line we see the birth of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and therefore redeems all women in that sense and, and all men through what only women can do, which is giving birth to the Savior. To, to put it another way, Salvation comes through childbirth, is what is going on here. There's the sole domain of women who are the line of salvation. But, as much as that might be true, I think there is a much more simple and a much more beautiful reason as to why this verse is here. And that is the simple truth, that women in their womanness, characterized by the fact that only women can give birth, that being their ultimate perfect pre-creation role on earth, regardless of whether a woman actually does or can give birth. And I know that is really tough for some of us here this morning. I want you to chat to me about that afterwards. The point is here, it is something that men physically cannot do. That's the point. It's solely in the embrace of woman, this role. And it is in women embracing their womanness as created for them by the Father who loves them, who saved them, who brought them into his family under his headship and protection, where the full experience of what God has for them in his salvation, in his plans for them, is perfectly embraced. In other words, Jesus says through Paul, as Paul closes this part of the argument, women don't feel you have to be something you're not. Don't try and take the roles that you don't need to worry about. Don't be forced by the world to have to look and behave in a certain way. Be you. Be you, says Jesus, as I intended you to be, in the way I created you to be, in the way that I wanted you to flourish, to be women in the earth who display God's goodness through your godliness, through your good works, your unique female, unmale roles, equal with men in redemption, but, but drawing people to yourself in the only way that you can as the world looks on you in the church, woman, in your unique beauty, adorning the gospel in which you are the pillar and buttress of God's truth. And no one is going to say this better as I close than a woman. Elizabeth Elliot, 
to be exact, a great missionary in her own right, the wife to Jim Elliot the Martyr. I'm very thankful for many of you who have actually shown me these, these words, which is why I'm using them here this morning. She wrote the following words to her students in, in, in different sources about these very verses and how beautiful they are. And with her words, I will close. She says this, The fact that I am a woman does not make me a different kind of Christian, but the fact that I am a Christian makes me a different kind of woman. To me, she says, a lady is not frilly, flouncy, flippant, frivolous, and fluff-brained. She is gracious, she is godly, and she is giving. You and I, she says to the women who she is teaching, have the incredible gift of femininity. The more womanly we are, the more manly men will be, and the more God is glorified. Then she says this, be women, be only women, be real women in obedience to God. She continues, responding to 1 Timothy 2, what sort of world, she says, might it have been if Eve had refused the serpent's offer and had said to him instead, please let me not be like God. Let me be what I was made to be. Let me be a woman. She says, we are women, and my plea is to you and to me, let me be so. Please let me be nothing else. Please let me be that which God has made me, holy through and through, asking for nothing but what God wants to give me, receiving with both hands and with all my heart, whatever that is. Let me pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We think on Peter, who was given the opportunity to turn away from the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And he said, Lord, to who else do we turn? You alone have the words of eternal life. Thank you that in 2 Timothy, Father, Paul's second letter to this same minister, we read that all scripture is God-breathed and all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. I pray, Father God, that that is what has happened for us today through the word of your servant Paul as he carries the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the head of this local church family. Father, please help us as men and women in this church family, created by you for your glory and for our joy, to be the men and women you intend us to be in this new, redeemed, Eden-like family on earth. Help us in our roles, Father. Help us to love each other well. Help us to bear with each other in love. Help the word of God to dwell amongst us richly. And help us all as teachers, leaders, prayers, and speakers in your church family, wherever we fit into those roles that you have given us, to use all our gifts for the glory of God, for the protection of your household, and for the salvation of the lost. And may it be that as we wrestle with these difficult texts from your word over this week, that we would do so not with quarreling spirits, but with gospel joy and humility and, and love as we seek to faithfully and carefully become the church that you want us to be, fit for gospel purpose, behaving well in your household, which is the pillar and buttress of your truth. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.